I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Before today's episode, a quick disclaimer. The statements from Drs. Nathaniel Chin, Cynthia Carlson, and Sterling Johnson do not reflect the opinions of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, UW Health, or the Veteran Affairs Healthcare System. The University of Wisconsin-Madison is one of 100 locations worldwide that are a part of the AHEAD study and one of approximately 63 sites across North America that are a part of the A4 study. Both are clinical studies of the investigational treatment lecanemab in people who may be at risk for memory problems. Dr. Carlson serves as the principal investigator for the AHEAD and A4 studies at UW-Madison, and Drs. Chin and Johnson serve on the study teams. The AHEAD study is funded by the National Institute of Health, NIH, in partnership with the pharmaceutical company, ESI, and is being conducted by the NIH-funded Alzheimer's Clinical Trial Consortium, known as ACTC. The A4 study is funded by the National Institute on Aging, NIA, NIH, Eli Lilly and Company, and several philanthropic organizations. Read more about the AHEAD and A4 studies in the episode description. Dementia Matters and Drs. Chin, Carlson, and Johnson receive funding from the National Institute on Aging and the National Institute of Health. Dr. Johnson has served on advisory boards for Roche Diagnostics, Prothena, Merck, and ESI in the past two years. He receives research funding to the University of Wisconsin from Saravu Technologies. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. On today's episode, I'm following up on a conversation I started back on January 17th regarding the FDA accelerated approval of the medication lecanemab. For those who have not listened to that episode, I encourage you to do so, as we'll be going more in-depth on this medication now, particularly the results of the Clarity AD clinical trial, which featured lecanemab. While the FDA accelerated approval was not based on the results we'll be discussing today, the findings are critical in helping the scientific field, the FDA, and Medicare determine if this medication is clinically meaningful, a phrase I think you will be hearing a lot of in the future. Joining me today to discuss this clinical trial and its new drug are two returning guests, Dr. Cynthia Carlson and Sterling Johnson. Dr. Carlson is the director of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute, as well as a professor, geriatrician, and Alzheimer's disease researcher at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Johnson is a professor, clinical neuropsychologist, leader of the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention Study, known as RAP, and the associate director of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute. So thank you both for joining me on Dementia Matters. Thanks, Nate. It's good to be here. Thank you, Dr. Chen. Oh, Cindy, you can call me Nate. So, <laughs> thank you, Nate. <laughs> so, Sterling, let's talk about the results of Clarity AD. So for our listeners, there's one primary outcome or endpoint, and then there are multiple secondary outcomes. But the primary outcome is, the, is an important one, a very important one, improving efficacy of a drug, and the one that's often talked about, although I would argue the secondary outcomes are, are very important, too. So what was the primary outcome, Sterling, and, and what was this result? Thanks, Nate. Uh, for this study, they chose the clinical dementia rating as their primary outcome. And there's a, a particular measure from this called the sum of boxes, which is just, as it, as it sounds, it's adding up the, the, the points on this rating and reporting out those points. 
And when they did that, they showed that the treatment group on lecanemab slowed down their rate of change on this on, on their score on this clinical dementia rating sum of boxes. They slowed down by 27 percent versus the placebo group that that uh, did not get the therapy. So, Cindy, can you briefly explain then this concept, this tool, the sum of boxes, and tell us what is meant? Now, now Sterling mentioned 27 percent reduced decline. The number point. 452 is also mentioned as a part of the, the score. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so with these studies, what they try to do is to get a kind of a full picture of the person's function. So this um, clinical dementia rating scale looks at six different domains. So it looks at memory, orientation, their judgment, how well they're able to problem solve, how they function in community affairs, how they function at home and in their hobbies and in their personal care. So there's different areas. They ask the participant or the patient and the family member or caregiver or someone who knows the person well, how well they're doing in these. And it's a um, very standardized approach. And then trying to see um, how well people are functioning in these different areas. And so with the uh, lecanemab therapy, again, this sum of boxes improved. So kind of the sum of all these kind of added up improved by about 0.5. And so that reduction, again, there's, there's people are questioning, is it that clinically meaningful? But again, um, some of the ratings, so to go from, um, you know, mild impairment with, um, to questionable impairment or to go from moderate impairment to benign forgetfulness can be um, within that range. So again, I think each person's different how well, how, how they would interpret how clinically meaningful this was. Um, but for some people, it may be clinically meaningful. So, um, you know, it could be clinically meaningful to them or to their family members. Um, you know, both groups are still declining because they do still have Alzheimer's disease. The drug doesn't stop the disease, but it slows down the progression. And thank you for emphasizing that last point, too, just for our listeners. This is not a cure for Alzheimer's disease, and people are still progressing, but they are noticing less change uh, based on being on this medication versus this placebo. And so that was the primary outcome. So, Sterling, one of the secondary outcomes dealt with amyloid PET scans. And so could you tell our listeners, you know, what were they looking for, and, and it, was it significant what they were finding? Yeah, this is a great question. Well, this drug is an anti-amyloid kind of a drug, and its target is the amyloid plaques in the brain. So the, the experiment looked at uh, amyloid in the brain, and the way they could do that was with PET scans. And these are really uh, a fancy way of doing imaging that, that is very specific to uh, imaging the amyloid plaques in the brain if, in fact, amyloid is there. And uh, that was an entry criteria to being in the study. So we know that everybody had amyloid in their brain who was in this um, study. And um, the, the experimenters used this scale called the centiloid scale. And it's kind of a play on words of the, of the centigrade temperature scale, which goes from zero to 100, um, for zero being uh, where water is frozen and 100 being where water boils. Those are the reference points. And for the centiloid scale on this amyloid PET scan, zero means you don't have any evidence of amyloid. And 100 means you have a level of amyloid that's very much like others who have dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. And um, in this study, they 
the average centiloid was about 75, which is about three quarters of the way there to being an, an AD-like level of, of um, amyloid plaques in the brain. And what the study did was it, by, by targeting amyloid, it lowered the amount of plaques in the brain from this starting point on average of 75, 59 points down to uh, an average of about 18. And this was over a period of 18 months. And, and so what is it abnormal then? I mean, you've said 100 is an abnormal centiloid. That's what someone with dementia, with Alzheimer's disease. Is there a, a lower threshold, though, that one would consider, okay, now you're technically amyloid elevated? And then my second question to yeah. you is, in removing amyloid, do you, do you have to get to that level, do you think? Well, the, uh, the, the group level data showed that nearly everybody declined who was on the treatment. And in fact, as a group, uh, they, they declined by 59 points from 75 down to 18. But what was intriguing was um, this particular study used a, a threshold of 30 as, uh, as their um, cut point or their threshold, so to speak, of being amyloid positive. And after um, 18 months on the drug, it seems like uh, not everybody, but a good chunk of these people were below that level of 30 centiloids. At one year, it was 54. And uh, I don't recall what the number was at the end of the trial, but it was um, a substantial number of, oh, it was 68% uh, actually became normal based on, on um, getting below this 30 centiloid level. And so that's pretty, pretty remarkable. Most people were reverted to normal by this drug. And so, Cindy, in addition to an amyloid PET scan, there were other really important secondary outcomes. Can you go over a few of these and in, in what the results were? Yeah. So, um, again, the, the study really tries to look at a variety of factors. So they look at things that are important to see if the drug's working, so things like amyloid levels in the brain. And they look at things like, does it help them think better? So looking at cognitive outcomes. And then the fuller picture, does it make a difference on their quality of life, um, how well they're functioning? So things that we really care about as, as people who may be living with this disease. So um, with the, you know, again, the primary outcome was this um, clinical dementia rating scale, but they also had other measures. So another measure was the Alzheimer's disease composite score that um, looked at cognition and how it relates to function. Um, and there's another um, activities of daily living scale, too, that looked at more functional outcomes. So there are a variety of measures that showed that not only did it, again, improve the how much amyloid there was in the brain, but also it improved their daily function. It also improved their thinking abilities across a variety of um, types of thinking abilities. So um, that's partly what made this study more exciting is that there was consistency across these things instead of just saying, um, the one measure of, you know, amyloid in the brain improves district without any impact on the person. Um, the study showed that there was consistent improvement in a lot of these measures. And so, Sydney, I'm going to ask you a tough question, but as a physician in a memory clinic who treats people living with thinking changes and who works with many other disciplines in, in doing so, do you think your colleagues and the patients that you see, would they find these results clinically meaningful? I think um, there are some patients who would find this clinically meaningful. I think they're, they're really 
want to keep protect their cognition, protect it from declining at all costs. And so I think there's other decision making that's going to come into play. So the clinical meaningfulness and also um, how the person views their time. So do they want to spend every two weeks coming in to get a therapy? Um, some patients don't want to see their doctor every three months because it's too much time taken away from gardening or fishing or other things they're enjoying. And so um, I think it's going to not only be a matter of um, do they think it's clinically meaningful, but is it is the benefit enough to counteract the time it's going to take them to have um, the infusions done? Um, I think some of our some clinicians say it's not very clinically meaningful. Others say we don't have anything that's better, um, and that they're encouraged. Some people are encouraged by the continued improvement over time for the duration of the study. So. Will it have even more effect after 18 months? Um, those are questions we don't know yet. I appreciate your answer because certainly risk benefit is something that matters a great deal. And I'm sure Medicare will be thinking about that too. But then also costs benefit and cost doesn't have to be money. Cost can be time and, and the hassle factor. So it's not something I consider. So thank you for sharing that. Um, there were other biomarker analyses that were done in addition to the amyloid PET scan. So Sterling, can you just provide a brief overview of some of the other key findings from the study? Sure. Yeah. Our, our field really has uh, several biomarkers now that are indicative of AD or indicative of having neuronal damage happening in the brain as a result of, of AD. And um, so this study looked at something called A-beta 42 to 40, which is um, something you can get out of the spinal fluid or also out of out of the plasma. And it's a, it's an indicator of, of the amount of amyloid that might be present in those, in those fluids. And that measure became more normal-like uh, with treatment of lecanemab. And similarly, they measured something called P-tau-181, both in the spinal fluid and in plasma in the blood. And they found also with that that it normalized. It, it became more normal-like uh, or a, it, it was reduced um, with treatment, I should say. And then they also looked at another PET scan called a tau PET scan. And what they found with that is that the, the people on the drug had lower levels of tau. Uh, especially in the temporal lobe, which is the area that's most concentrated for tau proteins uh, on, on these PET scans. And um, they looked at a few other things too, measures of neurodegeneration. One's called neurofilament light. Uh, one's called GFAP, which is a measure of astrocyte function. Then there was a, finally one more called neurogranin, which is another measure of, of how well the neurons are functioning and how well the synapses are communicating. They found some uh, mixed results with these. The neurofilament light measure didn't really um, change all that much. There was a, a slight trend that wasn't significant. The um, GFAP, which is this measure of inflammation-related um, change, uh, improved significantly on the canamab. Neurogranin, this measure of synapse function and how well neurons are communicating, that also improved. There was one other measure they did, which was uh, MRI, just looking at the quantitatively at the amount of brain tissue um, before and after treatment. And what they found was a little bit curious. They found that there was slightly more atrophy in the 
group that had the lecanemab treatment. We don't know why that is. I think there'll be lots of research uh, on this over the next coming months and years to help us understand why there would be this kind of paradoxical effect. That's helpful for our listeners to understand if they weren't familiar with this particular clinical trial, but clinical trials in general, it's not just about amyloid protein or even tau protein, that there are other mechanisms or pathways of thinking change that these studies are looking at, inflammation um, being one of them. What does all that mean, though, when you when you think about all of these biomarkers either showing the, this expected result of change, reduction in change, or even trending in that way? What does that tell you about the, the amyloid cascade hypothesis or, or this ATN framework of amyloid tau and neurodegeneration? I think when you look at the overall pattern here, the overall preponderance of, of the evidence with the primary outcome being kind of clinical cognitive symptoms and the secondaries being other cognitive symptoms and activities of daily living and the biomarker evidence, uh, all of this is pointing to a drug that looks like it's working. It was most pronounced, the, the most pronounced effect looked like it was on amyloid. And that's, uh, I think that means that it's engaging the target. It's actually finding the amyloid plaque that's in the brain and reducing it. That seems to be um, the, the narrative that I'm seeing. And as, an, uh, as a result of that, there's a, uh, a reduction in symptoms. It's not complete but at least there's a, a significant difference in symptoms and in these other biomarkers on this drug. And I, I think the preponderance and overall pattern here is that we have a, a favorable profile with this drug that looks like it's truly modifying the disease. It's not stopping it, but it's modifying it. And that's really, really incredible. Now, Cindy, you hinted to this earlier in one of your answers, but there are researchers talking about potential cumulative effects of disease-modifying therapy, just the way Sterling mentioned it. Now, what does that mean, though, a cumulative effect in a drug like lecanemab? Well, these types of studies, they're short, short studies. You know, again, they're studying people over an 18-month period of time. And obviously, many people with dementia due to Alzheimer's disease are going to be living beyond that. So trying to figure out um, what's going to happen beyond the 18-month period of time. And so sometimes we'll have additional information from open what they call open-label extension components of the studies where people are able to get the true medication beyond the duration of the study. Um, but sometimes they have to kind of guess what, what would happen if we kept the person on the study for four years, five years, et cetera. And so because of the way the graphs look and the results look so far, it looked like people were continuing to have improvement in um, cognition and in these functions and, and their quality of life. So um, because, you know, again, both groups are declining, but the group that's declining without the medication, it's declining at a faster rate. So again, if there's greater effect down the road, then, so for example, um, you know, there may, they're estimating that there may be a preservation of about seven months of time of cognitive, you know, stabilizing the cognitive function of someone. So, you know, how clinically meaningful is that? To have seven more months of um, preserved cognitive function. So if that seven months includes your granddaughter's, you know, wedding or other big life events, um, that might be clinically meaningful for someone. Um, they also, you know, again, 
may progress to the next stage of dementia at a later point in time. So again, does that mean they can stay home longer, that their family can support them longer in their own home setting? So those things are sometimes really important questions for patients and families. Um, you know, we know that institutionalization, which is when someone moves from home to a nursing home or a higher level of care, um, it varies from person to person. So, you know, if a patient happens to live next door to his daughter, who's a nurse and his son's an EMT, and they've been in their neighborhood for 50 years and know everyone, um, that person might be able to stay in their home longer than somebody who maybe is new to their surroundings or doesn't have as many children nearby. So it's not just um, the effect of the drug on the person that's going to determine if someone moves to higher level of care, but um, if the drug can help keep that person in their home setting, then that's valuable to patients, families, and economics as well for cost of uh, providing care for people with dementia. When you're leading me to my next question, which is that the study did look at other things such as well-being, quality of life, what did they find, Cindy? Yeah, so they found that um, quality of life did seem to improve. Um, another thing which influences um, the care of the person with dementia is the care of the caregiver. So the person who's caring for that person, um, if they feel less stressed because the person's doing better, they're thinking better and able to engage in their own cares better, maybe they're sleeping better. You know, so if the medicine helps with some of those aspects, then the caregiver may be sleeping better and functioning better. Um, and so their what we call caregiver burden is less. And so they did some measures, um, a Xeret um, caregiver inventory scale that looks at some of those factors. So that seemed to improve as well. So a lot of different factors moving in, in the, the right direction, which is encouraging. Sterling, can you tell our audience what subgroup analyses are just in general and then why they're done in a study? Yeah, subgroup analysis is when you just look at a subset of people who are on the treatment or the placebo and you look at those individuals to see if there was um, a, a difference there. And an example would be looking at older people versus younger people in the trial or men versus women. Well, and you kind of took my thunder with this question, though, Sterling, because the reason I'm bringing it up is that in the news, look, people are commenting that lecanemab may be more effective in older people versus younger people and in men versus women. And I, from your scientific perspective, you know, do we should we be looking at this cautiously and, and why? Well, these subgroups are really important for raising questions for further study. And uh, we have a habit in our field of looking at subgroups because we've had, what, two decades of negative trials, and we've squinted at these little subgroups of certain demographics to see if there was any glimmer of hope in any of these subgroups. And um, and so that's kind of been our habit as a field to to try to learn from these failed trials over the years to see what the next trial might look like. Uh, in this case, um, the, the study was not really... Uh, they didn't plan on these things ahead of the time. Ahead of time, they uh, this, these are after the fact, and so there's not enough um, statistical um, firepower, uh, if you will, to to really have confidence in any of these subgroups. What they do is they, as I said before, they just raise questions for the next study, where we might want to look at men versus women with more uh, intention on that in the future, or older versus younger subjects with more intention uh, of balancing those groups and, 
and really having a proper study on, on age. But that, that's a question that we can now ask, and um, maybe the next study will answer it. So instead of conclusions, these things should raise more important scientific questions. Yes. Yeah. So Cindy, you talked about risk benefit, cost benefit. So I'd like to talk a little bit about safety of the medication, particularly ARIA. And I did go into some ARIA in my introduction episode from January 17th. But I want to hear from you with a little bit more data that you have. You know, how did lecanemab do in this regard? So, right. So, um, again, people have raised the questions, rightly so, is that, that um, lecanemab does have side effects, so, and some of them are very serious. So, again, having good um, conversations about the side effects is really important for clinicians with the patients, and that's going to go into the decision-making so RIA are these amyloid-related imaging abnormalities that you've talked about before, um, and there's two types. There's one that's called um, hemorrhagic versus edema, so you have the H versus E. Hemorrhagic is more of the um, microhemorrhages, so tiny mini-bleeds, and then the edema is just little bits of swelling um, in the brain. By calling them um, the eye of the aria means that they're imaging, so they're things that we see on the brain scan. So not all of them does the person with these changes experience any symptoms with those. And so, again, we have to distinguish them between what are we just seeing as kind of incidental findings on brain scans versus what are causing symptoms in the person that's going to affect their day-to-day life. So with the aria, they broke it down into um, the edema and the um, hemorrhage or the micro hemorrhages, the mini bleeds. And what they found was that about 12.6% um, of people in the treatment group compared to 1.7% in the placebo group or the, med- the ones without active medication had the aria that had the micro, the little um, edema with it. So the aria E. But again, a very small percentage of those had symptoms. So it was only 2.8% of those who were on the treatment had REA-E with symptoms and none of the participants on placebo did. So again, it's not very common unless you have the medication. Um, but again, the, the hemorrhagic findings, about 17% of people who are on the treatment had the REA-H and about 9% in the placebo group um, had the REA-H. So just to know that the, the amyloid itself in the blood vessels can lead to little microbleeds. So just having the disease in and of itself can lead to microbleeds. So that's why we're seeing some of these changes in a placebo group as well as a treatment group, but a higher percentage in the treatment groups. But again, many of these were not symptomatic either. So if you look down at the symptomatic, um, the people who had symptomatic of the microbleeds, it was extremely small. So like 0.7% in the treatment group and like almost, you know, 0.2% in the um, placebo group. So again, a lot of these factors have to be taken into context for, you know, did they have have edema, the ARIA-E with the ARIA-H? Were they just on the scan? Did the person have any symptoms with that? And kind of teasing apart a lot of those factors. The other thing that influences it is that um, people who have a genetic risk called um, apolipoprotein E, Epsilon four or APOE four, um, one of a something that increases our risk, but doesn't necessarily mean for sure we'll get it. Get dementia. Um, the 
ApoE4 carriers tended to have a greater risk of having some of the hemorrhages and the edema, so had the more side effects. So again, as people are coming into these trials, a lot of times um, they are, for these studies, they're doing genetic testing to see are they more prone to getting these side effects, and that'll probably become part of clinical practice is that you may have to screen to see what their genetic risk factor is. You can decide what's your risk of having one of these microbleeds versus a microedema and it causing you symptoms where you would you know, have some clinical consequences. It's a very unfortunate reality that the ApoE4 increases risk for having Alzheimer's disease, and, and that's the population we're, we're trying to help with this drug, but then you're also at a higher risk of just having some of the side effects. So it does seem like an important piece of information for people potentially to know in the context of therapy. Um, but it's, it's good for us to be able to identify these things. Moving on from that, Cindy, I was hoping you could share with us how Clarity AD did as far as representation of the people who were actually in the study. Yeah, so it's one thing that um, clinical trials across the board, but especially Alzheimer's disease clinical trials, um, has not done a good job of is making sure that the people who are included in the clinical trials are representative of those who are at risk for developing dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. So um, again, um, for a variety of reasons, probably a lot of social determinants of health, um, persons who are from African-American descent or persons who are um, Hispanic, Latino background and Native American have higher risks of developing dementia due to Alzheimer's but yet they tend to be very underrepresented in these clinical trials. So this study made a concerted effort. Um, again, they did the study internationally. So they had participants from North America, Europe, Asia. So, you know, again, obviously they had the larger Asian population, but within North America, they were able to increase the number of Hispanic participants and slightly increase the number of African-Americans. So they had about 12% who were Hispanic. Um, it was a, about two to three percent who are African-American and and then the larger Asian population chiefly from the um, cohort in Asia. So again, the representation was improved, um, but still not where we'd liked it to be because we want to make sure that people from different backgrounds who have different constellation of risk factors, vascular risk factors and other things um, are represented. So we can see are these drugs safe and effective in these different kind of subgroups of individuals. So we've talked about the results, the primary results, the secondary outcomes. We've talked about the significance of those as well as the potential side effects and the people being studied. So that's all within, that's all being reviewed by the, the, the bodies that determine approval. And so Sterling, what happens next? Where do we go from here? Yeah, um, that's, it's, uh, we're, we're all waiting to know what's going to happen with these reviews. But it's in the FDA's hands, like you said, and uh, they're reviewing the, the line item data and going over everything with with uh, fine detail, and they'll make their decision sometime um, in the in the late spring or summer of 2023. And then uh, the Center for um, Medicaid Studies—that's the wrong word. <laughs> What's the right word? Services, right? Center for Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid Services. They, they will also be reviewing this um, uh, probably after the FDA makes their decision. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies will be re reviewing this as well. And they'll, they'll be making decisions about um, whether this can be administered clinically and then whether it'll be reimbursed. It's an exciting time. 
but a lot of waiting going on here. And so we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to provide updates as things happen. To end, Cindy, I'm going to ask you another hard question. And, and that is, let's say everything moves forward, the approvals happen. What actually needs to happen within healthcare in order for this medication to reach a patient? That's a, a great question. A lot of discussions happening around this because, you know, right now, dementia is underdiagnosed in our country. Um, you know, there's estimates that about 50 to 60% of people with dementia are diagnosed. Um, biomarkers do not widespread use, do not have widespread use in clinical practice. So a lot of clinicians are not comfortable using biomarkers, so using these amyloid PET scans, scans or CSF levels or blood tests to decide if someone has elevated amyloid to see if they're eligible to get the study drug. Um, and then, so from there, again, improving diagnoses, improving understanding how to use biomarkers. And then from there, um, the clinicians have to understand, you know, who's a good candidate for this. So what is their ApoE genotyping? Um, do they have other risks for cerebral hemorrhages? There's questions about whether someone on anticoagulation should get this medication. Then they have to be able to have enough infusion centers for people to come in every two weeks. The infusions take about an hour, but there's some prep time before and after and some monitoring for allergic reactions. Um, so again, there take, there's that time. There's also careful monitoring that has to be done. So people have to be able to have an MRI scan before they have the um, infusions done and also for monitoring afterwards. And so those MRI scans have to be done on a regular basis to make sure these ARIA changes, these microhemorrhages, microedemas um, aren't occurring. Um, we also need to have emergency room personnel who are comfortable when somebody comes in with a headache after getting an infusion, when to worry about um, a side effect versus just somebody having a headache. So there's a lot of... Um, training, infrastructure, follow-up that needs to happen. And this is happening in the context of, you know, clinicians who aren't super comfortable many times managing dementia, caregivers who are already overburdened, and the patients who have memory loss. That's why they're being evaluated. So it adds extra layers of complexity to um, help kind of get this therapy into practice. Um, and then again, in addition to healthcare systems having to decide if they're going to cover this expensive therapy and all the extra costs that come with administering it. Well, with that said, so very exciting results, landscape changing kind of study, but a lot still to understand, a lot still to determine. Yes. Well, I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Carlson, Dr. Johnson, for joining me on Dementia Matters. I'm certain we'll be having more conversations as time progresses and we are learning more about this approval or not approval of Lacanamab. Thank you, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and edited by Kaylin Rauerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. 
To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.